Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I am your host, Jessica. I'm so glad that you are here with me, whether it's daytime, nighttime, whenever you get to listen. I'm glad that you're here. I hope you all had a great weekend. I did. It was spent with lots of family. I got to see two of my nephews show their animals at our local livestock show. And uh, part of it was a little bittersweet because one of my nephews is a senior in high school and this is his last show. So it was a great show. And then we all had dinner as a family. And then my other nephews from the other side of the family came and spent the night at our house. So it was a very busy weekend, but lots of fun. Our episode this week is a little different because it does not take place in Texas. Usually, I know we stick to Texas-based crimes, but I felt like this story needed to be shared. A few months ago, the host from the podcast, The Book of the Dead, reached out to several other podcasts and told us about Alex Van Dawson's death and his family's search for the truth about what happened to him. Alex's family does not believe that a proper investigation was done, and they have hit a lot of dead ends from police and pretty much any other areas that they've pursued. So I can't imagine losing your child and then to also feel like you are being ignored by the people who are supposed to help you. That would be even worse. So I wanted to share Alex's story so that hopefully more more awareness will bring more answers for his family. On the night of February 3rd, 2021, at 11.45 p.m., 21-year-old Alex Van Dalsen left his home in Lafayette, Indiana, on foot. It was bitterly cold that night and snowing. The temperature was 20 degrees, but the real feel was 4, so brutally cold. Alex was wearing a black sweatshirt with a Chevrolet emblem on it, blue jeans with gray sweatpants over them, a black beanie hat, and tan boots. When he walked out of his house... He did not tell his sister or grandmother he was leaving. They were asleep in their home, but he did not wake them up to let them know that he was going anywhere. He took nothing with him. No phone, no keys, no wallet. He also left his inhaler behind, which he used on a regular basis for his asthma. He left his car in the driveway. Alex's mother and stepfather were at work at the Subaru factory and would not be home until later on that night. When Alex's parents arrived home from work, they did not suspect that anything was wrong. Alex's car was parked in the driveway. The door to his bedroom was closed, but that was not unusual. They just assumed that he was asleep in his room like everyone else at the house. Now, the next morning when Alex's mother, Jennifer, woke up, she went to Alex's room to say good morning, but he wasn't there. Still, this did not worry her because it was fairly common for Alex's girlfriend, Genesis, to come and pick him up. And for him to possibly leave before other people at the house woke up for the day. After all, Jennifer and her husband worked late at night at the Subaru plant. So they were getting home really late and were sleeping in, as were Alex, who had a more regular schedule, got up before they did. So they didn't think much of the fact that he wasn't home. Well, the family went on about their day as usual until later on that night when Genesis, Alex's girlfriend, came to the house to check on Alex. She told the family that she had not been able to reach him all day. So when no one knew where Alex was, Jennifer, Alex's mother, started to call his friends, 
but no one had seen or heard from him. His family then checked the security cameras at their house. On the cameras, they can see Alex walk from their house, walking down the driveway away from their home. But then the camera loses range and you can't see anything else. But you can see that he left the house of his own volition and walked down the driveway. But then after that, no one knows where he, which direction he went or if someone picked him up or if he continued to walk. So that was the last time there was any known sighting of Alex. And after that, there's a lot of questions. So after Jennifer, Alex's mother, talked to Genesis and they figured out that no one had seen Alex or heard from him in all this time, Jennifer was obviously very worried. Where was Alex? Um, she left work and they started searching for him. But when they were unable to find him, Jennifer called 911 at 10 p.m. and reported Alex missing. They knew that this just didn't make any sense. It was very unlike Alex for him to go all this time without talking to Genesis or one of his family members. So they were very worried because they knew something was off. The dispatcher told Jennifer that they would send an officer to the house. Now, an officer had not made it to the house, so sometime between 1130 and 11.45, Jennifer called back to ask when she might expect an officer's arrival. An officer finally got to the house a few minutes after midnight. The family spoke with the officer and explained that no one had seen or heard Alex, seen or heard from Alex since 11.45 p.m. the night before. So it had been almost 24 hours at this point that nobody had talked to him. Nobody had seen him, not friends, not Genesis, not family. And on top of that, he had left without any of his things, including his medication. Jennifer said that not much was done that night to try to find Alex. She was very disappointed in the response that she got from police. She had hoped that they would issue a silver alert, but the police did not. Now in Indiana, police issue a silver alert for missing and endangered adults. So like an Amber Alert for children, this is a silver alert for missing and endangered adults. And I had to look that up because here in Texas, a silver alert means it's an elderly person that's gone missing. So I did, was not aware. Of course, I know laws are different in every state, but I had to look that up to find out that in Indiana, silver just means adults. So Jennifer believes that the reason the police didn't really do much to find Alex was because the officer was prejudiced against Alex because he was transgender. Now, Alex came out as a transgender male when he was 18. His grandmother said that she thought that it was more challenging for his friends and family to understand things and to be accepting than it was for Alex. She said that once Alex made this decision, he was very comfortable with it and felt better than he had, that it was such a good change for him. Now, I'm not sure if the police did not properly investigate Alex's case because he was transgender, but there's definitely some very lazy police work throughout this investigation, and we're going to get to that. There are plenty of questions about what really happened and where Alex was before his body was found. But in all the reports that I read from the night Alex went missing that were written by the officer who arrived to take Jennifer's statement, there's 
actually multiple reports written about Alex, but nothing in the in-between from when Alex went missing to when he was actually found. It doesn't, it doesn't look like they did a lot to find him in those days in between. Now, once they find him, there is police report from multiple officers who ended up on the scene ready to investigate and look at things. But there's not a lot other than the night he went missing and then after he was found. So that does make you wonder what the heck was going on in the in-between. Now, the officer's report that came to speak with Jennifer and Genesis and the family the night Alex was went missing states that when he arrived at the Van Dawson home and spoke with Jennifer, Alex's mother, Jennifer explained that they had become concerned about Alex after they realized that no one had seen him since the night before. And so for this, I really just have taken and paraphrased the officer's report just so you kind of get an idea of what the officer reported. And I'm going to kind of let you know Jennifer's feelings as well. Because like I said, she was not thrilled with the way things were handled. And rightfully so. Uh, so the officer said that Jennifer informed, the, informed him that Alex was diagnosed with depression and anxiety, but that he didn't take his prescribed medications like he should because they made him feel sick. And that is pretty common for a lot of people. They don't like the way their medicine feels, even though it helps them in one way. They don't like the side effects of it. The report also states that Alex received treatment at Sycamore Springs for suicidal thoughts and anxiety, but it doesn't, it just says he received treatment not long ago. So I don't know what that means. Within a few months, less than that, it doesn't specify. I mean, not long ago is not very specific. And that's based on your own timeline, how you perceive that, you know, I wish there had been a more definite date. It goes on to say that the family searched Alex's room and they found a note in his room that said, please give back to Genesis, her journal, boxers, house key, bracelet, anything else that she has here. And then he wrote her phone number on the note several times. And I did see a picture of this note and it is, it's just a little list that says, please give back to Genesis. And then it's just bulleted with the things that Alex wants given to Genesis. Now, there's been a lot read into that by police saying that that could be considered a suicide note, but Alex's family don't feel that that was an actual suicide note. They just think it was kind of like a to-do list that he had made on things that he needed to get returned back to her. Now, the report also states that Jennifer found Alex's journal in his room. And there were several concerning entries. The last two entries were dated January 30th and February 3rd. The entries implied that he was thinking of leaving and not returning. Now, I did not get to see those journal entries. The officer does note that they were turned in to evidence and that they are somewhere. But I did not get to see or and could not find any pictures of those journal entries to see what they actually said. The officer spoke with Genesis, Alex's girlfriend, and she told him that she had last spoken with Alex at 7.14 p.m. the night that he went missing. So about four hours before 
Alex left his house. The couple made plans to see each other the next day and hang out. Genesis also told the officer that Alex had recently shown her a handgun that he had. But when Alex's room was searched, they couldn't find it. Now, when um, Genesis described the handgun to the officer, she said that it had purple grips on it. And so what that means is just on the actual grip or the place where your hand goes on the handgun, that it was purple. Um, Jennifer told the police that Alex liked to go for walks and that he liked to go to Wee Park and Wee Creek. So the officer states in his report that he checked these areas, but there was nothing of note. Jennifer also said that Alex had been very close to his grandfather, and so sometimes he liked to go sit at his grandfather's headstone and just spend time there. The officer stated that he intended to check up on that, but I'm going to tell you what. In 20-degree weather, I don't think that I would have gone for a walk in the park or gone to sit at any loved one's headstone to be with them. I would have saved that for the next day when it wasn't such brutal weather. So, but I mean, I guess, you know, you have no stone unturned, right? But I think it's interesting that you would think that he was just out for a stroll in 20 degree weather. That's not my idea of a fun time to be out and about. Um, so Jennifer, Jennifer was very disheartened by the response she had gotten from the police already. She felt like they didn't issue the silver alert like they, she had hoped. And she just felt like they really weren't taking things seriously. So the next morning, one of Jennifer's co-workers gave her the information of a retired police officer named Janet Winslow, who had a search dog. They contacted Winslow, and she agreed to come to their home to perform a search. Janet Winslow called the county police to let them know that she was going to do a search, so they sent two deputies out to meet her. Now, this is another point where um, there's some discrepancy. The officers in their report write it as if it was a good thorough search, and they did a really great job. Jennifer, on the other hand, states that Janet Winslow told her that she would have liked to have searched more, but because the officers weren't dressed for the very cold weather, that they ended things too soon. So, again, discrepancies there, what the police reported, and then what Jennifer has to say. Uh, Which, if I thought that the police were like, oh, it's too cold and they don't have the proper gear, and just quit. I'd be mad too. So Janet Winslow was given an item with Alex's scent on it. Her dog was able to follow Alex's scent down the road for about a mile, but then he lost the scent after that. Jennifer said that when the deputies returned to the house, they questioned her about being at the house for previous welfare checks on Alex. She said that that was not accurate because Alex had never been missing before. Now, the police report states something different. The officer says that he wanted to get more information on Alex, and he told her that he had been to the home before for similar incidents that involved welfare checks at the house. 
He says he did not say went missing, that they were similar incidents, but Jennifer was very upset by the questioning. She felt that they were, you know, kind of accusatory in leading that Alex just does these kinds of things. So again, discrepancies there. Now the police soon left after this exchange and Janet Winslow told the family that she knew someone that had worked with her on other cases named Sean Hennedy. Hennedy owned a thermal imaging drone and he agreed to come out and do a mapping of the area to see if it might help them find Alex. But all, he was also unable to find anything. Now the family had been searching and they had searched a five mile area surrounding their home, which you would think would have been a good amount of area. After all, Alex left on foot. It was brutally cold. The weather was not conducive for foot travel by any means, but they still were not able to find any traces of Alex. Now on February 8th, five days after Alex went missing, Detective Tislow finally called to say that he had just now been assigned to Alex's case. So you can see why Jennifer was very frustrated. And I don't blame her. Five days later, you're just now getting to me. You just got assigned the case. The detective came to the house on February 9th. So he called her on February 8th and then waited another day before he even came to the house and took down background information on Alex and then left with Detective Pierce to go search areas where they thought Alex could have been. They were given some information that led them to go talk to Alex's aunt. But Alex's aunt said that Alex hadn't been at her house for almost two years and that she was aware that Alex was missing, but she had not seen him. Then they went to speak to another man who also knew Alex, said that he was aware that Alex was missing, that the family had come and searched in the area, but he had not seen Alex either. So the police asked if they could search again, and he said yes. So they searched the areas and actually ended up in an abandoned house, but still no signs of Alex. No one was able to locate him. Now, while the detectives were on their way back to the Tippecanoe County Sheriff's Office, they received a call that a body had been found at the Crosser Sports Complex and that it matched Alex's description. A city worker had been using a snowplow that morning to clear the path out at the Crosser Sports Complex. Now, this was his normal route. This is what he did. So it wasn't like he was out there at a weird time, but he said he was out on a snowplow. He was plowing his area and he saw Alex's feet sticking out of the snow and they were on the walking path. So he stopped the plow. He got out and went to check on the person. The man said that when he saw Alex, he could tell that he was deceased. So he did not touch him and he immediately called the police and his supervisor to let him know what was happening. Now, I wanna tell you a little bit about the area. To get where Alex was found, you have to walk about a mile down a path that ends up in a dead end. And also, at this time of the year, it was covered in snow. It wasn't easy to get to. It wasn't a place that was really being used right now. It was kind of remote. And it just wasn't an area that people were really going to. 
and it was 10 miles from Alex's house. His family says that there's no way that Alex could have made that walk in the extremely cold weather, especially since he didn't have his inhaler with him. His asthma was severe. This was not something that Alex would have been able to do. So the question is, how did Alex get there? Did he really walk there? Did someone pick him up in a vehicle once he was out of camera range and drove him there while he was alive? Or did they drive him there after they had killed him? No one really knows. There's not really information on that. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And I just kind of want to give you guys an idea of kind of what this area was like. Like I said, it was more, it was, even though it was part of a sports complex, it was a remote area of this park. It had been snowing heavily. So the snow was built up. The officers had a hard time getting their vehicles down to the area. And on top of that, the v, the transport vehicle that came to take Alex to the coroner's office couldn't even get down to the area because there was so much snow. It was, the snow was so dense and it was remote and it was hard to get to. So Alex's body had to be put in a officer's vehicle and driven up to the main road. So then they could transport it into the transport vehicle. So this is not an area that people are just going to hang out. Another thing that happened, which has been questioned, was there was a vehicle that was not, like, not parked next to Alex's body, but within walking distance, a short area away from where Alex was found. Now, here's the deal, though. In the pictures of that car, you can tell they've gotten stuck in the snow. They've slid off the road, and the car, the whole driver's side front and back driver's side, is all the way against the chain link fence. It's off the road. There's no way you could have opened the front or back pass, drive, sorry, driver's side door. You could not. It's, it's sandwiched right up against that fence. So to get out of that car, you would have had to have climbed over the console to go out through the passenger side. Or I guess you could climb down through the back seat and gone out the back passenger side door, but there was no way you were opening those driver's side doors. They were flush, completely flush with the fence. That Now that car was checked out and the man actually showed up while police were on the scene and said, oh, well, you know, my girlfriend and I were driving. She drove down here and tried to turn around and got stuck and couldn't get out. 
So I was coming to see if I could get the car today. Well, when officers then questioned the woman, she told a little different story. And that was brought up too, that the people had differencing, different stories. But I think you're going to understand why when I tell you what the woman said. The woman said, oh yeah, my boyfriend drove down there because he wanted to smoke a joint. And he was looking for somewhere a little remote. He wanted to smoke a joint. Well, we got down there and we got stuck. So we walked up and it is noted two different city workers say that she tried to flag them down. This was the day before Alex was found. This woman tried to flag down two different city workers to try to get them out off the side of the road, get them unstuck. And the city worker said, you know, we're sorry, we are not authorized to do that as city workers. And so they ended up leaving the car there. Well, you know why the stories are different. This guy doesn't want to tell police officers, hey man, I was trying to find a nice secluded spot to smoke my joint. We got stuck in the process, but his girlfriend ratted him out and was like, yeah, well, he wanted to smoke a joint and we got stuck. So officers ruled them out as having anything to do with Alex's death. Now, when the officers arrived at the scene, they found Alex's body lying on his back with his legs crossed at the ankles and his hands in the pockets of his sweatshirt. His body was covered in about an inch of snow and it was completely frozen. There was a pink camouflage handgun lying under his right elbow and there was a wound on the left and right side of his head that appeared to be a gunshot wound. And this is where things start to get even more murky. We've already had discrepancies in Jennifer's telling of what's happened as opposed to the police reports. Now things are going to get even more murky because in the body cam footage, you can hear the officers that arrived first at the scene saying that it looks like Alex's body was dumped there. They do not believe that that's where he died. They believe someone brought him there. They also say that it looks like his body was placed in that position. They don't think that he just laid down and died with his hands in his pockets and his ankles, his, his legs neatly crossed at his ankles. And that is, that's not very natural. They go on to say, and these are their words, they don't like the way things look. It's weird. They also know that it appears he has a gunshot wound to his head. But Detective Tislow will later tell Jennifer that her son died by suicide. And of course, she doesn't believe this. She doesn't think that this evidence adds up and that police just took the easy way out so that they could close their case. Now, Alex's body was transported to the Tippecanoe County Coroner's Office. Because his body was completely frozen, they only did an autopsy of his head. And I thought that was strange. Maybe it's just because I don't know how things work. But I assumed that they would wait for the body to thaw. And then they would do a complete autopsy. So if any of you out there have experience with autopsies and the way things go, let me know if that's common procedure to just do an autopsy on a head if the body's frozen. I mean, I could see doing that to get an ID on the person, but I don't know. I was surprised. 
if any of you have any experience in that, let me know if that's just the way things happen. Anyway, later on that day at 4.15 p.m., Detective Tislow went back to the Van Dawson home to notify Jennifer and Genesis that they had found Alex deceased. They showed both women a picture of a rose tattoo on Alex's right hand, and they both confirmed that that was Alex's tattoo. Now, Jennifer says that she was not told by police that Alex had died from a gunshot wound to the head. She said the detective Tislow said that there were no obvious signs of trauma and they would have to wait for the autopsy results to know the cause of death. She did not find out that her son had been shot until February 13th when the funeral home called her to see if she wanted an open casket funeral. They told her that if she would like an open casket because of Alex's injuries, they were going to have to make certain arrangements. And she did not know what they were talking about. The funeral home director then said, I apologize. I did not know that you did not know, but it's very clear to see that your son was shot. And I should not be the one to have to tell you that. Jennifer talked to Detective Tislow and asked why he didn't tell her up front when he told her that they had found Alex's body. And he told her that he didn't recall that he had said that there was no trauma visible. And she said, yes, I had to learn that from the funeral home. So he denied that he ever basically left her hanging without the proper information about her son. Now, she also pushed for more information about where the handgun came from because she did not recognize that gun. And finally, eventually, it was tracked down to a friend of Alex's had, it was a friend of Alex's gun, but the problem was, is she had been married, they got divorced, her spouse took it, she didn't realize that it was gone, and then somehow it wound up with Alex. So it's assumed that the ex-wife gave Alex the gun, but no one's really quite sure. And that was something else that Jennifer wanted more invest investigation on, and rightfully so, because maybe then there would have been more answers because she and Genesis just don't, and Alex's grandmother too, they just don't believe that Alex committed suicide. They feel like he was really working on himself and he was trying to get better and he was looking at the bright side of things. And they just don't think that was the place he was in at that time. And they want more investigation done, more info about the gun. They would like to know more about where was he all that time? You know, no one even started, the police didn't start doing anything until five days after he went missing. So there wasn't a lot of investigation done. And then once they decided it was a suicide, Jennifer says, you know, they just, that was it. They quit communicating with her. They wouldn't budge on anything. That was, his case was closed. That was their ruling done. You know, she had questioned the autopsy report and the ruling that it was suicide based on the entry and exit wounds. And like I said, I did do a little reading and it says that it is a possibility for entry wounds to be larger. Um, but she also says that, you know, listen to the officers on the scene, listen to their body cam footage. All of their comments 
are, you know, that they don't like the way it looks. They look like someone brought Alex's body there. They think that his body was placed the way it was. It wasn't like he just fell neatly in the snow. And the coroner's office stands firmly by their ruling. They say, yes, it is possible for entry and exit wounds to look like that. They also say that police officers are not experts, that that was police talk in those videos of them sussing the situation out and talking through it with each other, and that you can't take everything as cold hard fact when they are just basically saying out loud their first thoughts on the scene. So they told her that she can't use that as a reason to hope for the case to be reopened. Jennifer does have a change.org petition where she's hoping to get enough signatures to get Alex's case reopened so that someone else will look at it. And she also has a GoFundMe page set up hoping to raise some money so that she can hire a private detective because they are very expensive and she just doesn't have the money to do that. And really, if you look at the rates like that, most people can't afford a private detective. It's very expensive. She has those two things going. And as often as she can, she speaks out about Alex hoping to get some change. You know, she said she just wants more proof so that she truly feels like she has all the answers as to what really happened to her son. As for now, the Tippecanoe County Sheriff's Office, like I said, they are firm in their belief that Alex committed suicide and they are not willing to reopen the case and re-examine anything. Thank you for listening today. I appreciate you coming back every week to listen with me. If you have any uh, thoughts or comments, you can find me or any other ideas for other cases. You guys have sent me some really great stuff and don't think that I don't listen and I it's in the works. So I appreciate your comments. And I appreciate when you do reach out. I've had some answers that I've said, let me know. And you guys have. Y'all have come through and answered for me. And I really appreciate it. So thank you so much. If you would like to get in contact with me, you can find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. You can find me on Facebook at Texas True Crime. Or you can send me an email at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. Please remember, if you like what you hear, leave a five-star review hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss an episode and tell a friend about the podcast. I will see you next week. Bye.